0: If you're like me, you probably have a lot of misconceptions about Niccolò Machiavelli, but this quote of his feels especially relevant. I am not interested in preserving the status quo. I want to overthrow it. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author E.J. Beaton, Her debut political fantasy novel, The Counselor, is out now from Daw Books. EJ and I discuss building character through fight scenes, the difficulty of removing patriarchal elements from society, and that amazing yet underrepresented fantasy creature, the Chimera. So without any further ado, let's get right into our conversation. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, EJ. It's so great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me and including me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the counselor holds the record for the book that the entire fantasy and team has been most looking forward to for the longest amount of time. I think it's been almost three years now.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a really long lead-in. So um, thank you for your enthusiasm and support of the book as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, I guess just to sort of kick things off, I'm curious, uh, which historical figure would you most like to sit down and have a conversation with if you could pick anybody?
1: Yeah, um, gosh, I think having a dialogue with historical figures would be fascinating. If I could pick just one, uh, I'd probably love to sit down and have a long discussion with Caterina Sforza, who was the the Countess of Foley and the Lady of Imola in Italy in the 15th century. I think um, she was a woman who embodied the renaissance idea of really bold leadership, something that women weren't typically allowed to have. There were just so many things that she did that I'd love to ask about. Like, I mean, it could go on forever, but to to give a couple of examples like taking over a fortress while she was heavily pregnant, um, playing politics between Italy and France, writing a book of alchemy recipes using her children strategically to batter as hostages. And I think probably my favourite thing she did was getting Cesare Borgia to walk onto her drawbridge and then trying to wind it up while he was still on it. Um, I think that <laughs> one was just fabulous. Um, but, but I was thinking about this question, and I, I think most of all, I'd like to ask her about the things that weren't recorded, like her secrets. Um, in the final years of her life, she was supposed to have said, if I could write everything that happened to me, I would shock the world. And I think it was very likely that she was abused after she was captured. So I'd really like to hear her full story, Uncensored. And I was thinking that that's also what I'd really like to do with any famous women in history, like to hear what was left out of their story.
0: Yeah, I imagine there's quite a bit of that sort of history that never really makes it into our modern knowledge.
1: Yeah. And and I suppose that's something that fantasy can do too, is to sort of reinvent or reimagine those things and historical fiction.
0: One of the things that I found as a fantasy fan is that if history had been told to me in any sort of narrative fashion, kind of like fantasy books are, I would have been way more into history during my schooling uh, instead of just, you know, long figures of years that things happened and treaties that were signed and all of that.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that emotional connection brings the facts alive.
0: Exactly. And fantasy is very good at that emotional connection, even if the facts are a little bit iffy.
1: Yeah, (laughs) sometimes it's a bit playful, too.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, to take things way back, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy?
1: I suppose that really links to what you were just saying about storytelling, because I think some of the earliest literature I really encountered as a child were books about the Greek myths and the Norse myths. And I just fell in love with those stories. Like the worlds were bursting with magic and color and the tales were so full of drama. But I think what really spoke to me were the characters, Um, the goddesses like Hera and Athena, they were like real people. They had strong passions, they made mistakes. um, They changed the course of events by interfering in them. And then in the Norse myths, you had Loki, this shape-shifting, gender-shifting character who was an outsider to the group. And I, I really fell in love with the story of the Trojan War too, like the personal motives that drove it, the different stakes that people had and the way they could suddenly elevate their love or betrayal or anger over what their official duties were supposed to be. So I think for me, what made the real magic in those myths was the range of characters. And I suppose because of that, Um, I come to fantasy really looking to imagine a world where things are a bit different, where women can be powerful, where men can have a non-traditional masculinity, where people can be openly queer, where different cultures can coexist and all of that can be imagined in a new way. Like I suppose linking to those myths, I was never really into Zeus and I was into the Greek goddesses and I was never really into Thor but I was into Loki and I think the way that people have responded to the newer reimaginings of those myths shows that there are a lot of readers who crave that kind of epic, fantastical, mythological world, but with different kinds of characters as the protagonists, perhaps. I'm thinking of Circe and Song of Achilles, for example.
0: Yeah, definitely. I know uh, I've often said that now is a really, really good time to be a reader. There's just so much amazing writing stories that are coming out, especially in uh, speculative fiction. Uh, And a lot of that comes from just allowing other kinds of stories to be told you know we've had the same general types of stories pushed through marketing for decades now so it's nice to go in a different direction
1: yeah i I couldn't agree with you more and i I hope that that real diversity is going to push through into media adaptations too that we're going to see more different kinds of stories adapted for screen as well
0: Yeah, I I am hoping so, especially since, you know, these days I don't have many things I can do other than uh, either get lost in a book or watch something on the screen.
1: Yeah, yeah. in these times particularly, right?
0: Well, so also, I guess, still keeping us way back, though, maybe not quite as far back. uh, I'm interested to hear, do you have a writerly origin story you can share with us? So either how you decided you wanted to become a writer, the initial stories you were writing, just how did you get started on this path?
1: Gosh, um, I really love hearing people's writer origin stories because they're often so varied and sometimes it seems almost like a chance encounter or something, sparks something in their life. Um, but in my case, I guess it's a bit more straightforward because I really knew that I wanted to be a writer from a very young age, like as early as primary school, I was writing a lot. Um, I was a really avid reader and really into creative writing at school and You know, I can remember writing a 20,000-word story in high school that had dragons in it, and I think it went way past the word count that I was allowed, and I think it was probably an omen for the future because I'm still doing that, (laughs) like writing (laughs) fantasy stories of dragons that are a long way past the word count. But doing a, a PhD was really part of what helped me to become a writer because I had time to create a fantasy novel and to develop my ideas a bit more. And I think that's really one of the most valuable things that a grad writing program can give you Um, time, time to write. Um, I was essentially on minimum wage. So my living conditions weren't exactly great, but uh, I could work on my writing and get feedback from my PhD supervisors. And that was really invaluable. Um, But I think probably like in terms of people who helped me to become a writer that I'm really grateful for Um, my biggest supporter in my journey to become a writer was my brother, John, he encouraged me to pursue writing like uh, at times when I really wasn't sure if I could keep doing it. Uh, he really believed in me. He read all the chapters of the first draft of the council and gave feedback on them. And then around the time that I was finishing my PhD, he died in a car crash very suddenly and we were very, very close. So I, I suppose I motivated myself to keep going with the book by reminding myself that I was doing it for him, that he wanted it to be published. And so the the J in my name, EJ is his initial. So he's also been a really big part of my writing journey. And I think like without his support, I probably wouldn't have become a writer in the end.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's huge. And I didn't know that about your name. I think that's, that's adds a lot of extra meaning to it.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um,
0: Yeah. So you've been writing for so long and uh, I do want to get to your PhD a little bit later, but I'm curious, uh, is the counselor the first big story that you wrote or did you have any kind of the stories that she wrote that maybe never really saw the light of day.
1: Um, yeah, it's the first big piece that I wrote. I'd mostly written uh, like poetry, short fiction, um, and and sort of shorter pieces before that. And I I kind of always wanted to write a novel, so um, it was more a case of like, having the time to develop it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I think you actually you studied writing some. I know uh, your PhD especially, but during your undergraduate time at university, were you studying writing as well?
1: Yeah. Um, in my undergrad degree, I studied literature and writing in the English major, and I also studied a French major. And I think there's a really interesting overlap between learning French and writing in the English language because a lot of the ordinary words in French are really like rare words in English, like ameliorate, for example. And I, I really enjoyed that. It felt like a, a natural way of expanding vocabulary. really. Um, I also had this French professor of rhetoric who was really strict. And one of the things he emphasized was giving a group of three things in a sentence for emphasis. And I think it's something I still really enjoy using in my writing. Like there's probably quite a few sentences with a list of three things in the counselor as a legacy of that but within studying creative writing I really uh covered like the broad base of things so poetry short fiction script writing and I enjoyed all of them but I was really involved in poetry because I, I loved and and still love like the rhythms and the music of language and the way that you can really drill down to the emotional heart of what you want to say in a poem
0: I was definitely picking up on some of that poetry influence in The Counselor as well. Uh, Your prose definitely has that uh, slight poetic quality to it. Oh, thank
1: you. And and thank you so much for reading as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, (laughs) this is one of the books that everyone at the Fantasy end has been eagerly anticipating for, I think, right around three years now.
1: Oh, it's so lovely to hear that. And especially like in a year where there's so many books that I'm excited about coming out. So I'm just honored to be considered in the, the milieu of what fantasy is in 2021. It's an amazing year.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think actually, so you did a guest post for us back in 2018. Wow. Time is fake. But <laughs> I think that went live on like literally the day that I joined the fantasy in. So I've kind of always had that in the back of my head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't realize that was the day that you joined, but that's that's wonderful. <laughs>
0: So yeah, it's, I guess, surprising that that has been so long ago now. Yeah, and
1: thank you for featuring me. I, I think one of the things I really love about the Fantasy Internet and I follow you guys' post is the way that you support authors at different stages of their journey. It's so encouraging and it's not something that everyone does. So um, thank you for supporting me and also for supporting others and, and people from different backgrounds who could use the support.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely one of our goals i think none of us really have like particularly strong organization skills or at least i don't and i'm projecting that onto them and especially with (laughs) 2020 you know everything's been kind of a mess so we've not done as much of that lately as we want to but hopefully we can get back into it
1: yeah, look, being a person in, throughout 2020, I think, is a goal, like an, an achievement and a goal in itself, <laughs> let alone achieving anything else.
0: Yep, it really is. It really is. Maybe, you know, we didn't have like an extra interview and a blog post that week. But if I put on pants in the morning, I'll count it as a success.
1: Someone said to me recently, do you think 2021 has started better than 2020? And at the start of 2020, like New Year's Day, I was feeling really positive and the next day our country was on fire. So I think 2021 started a little bit better than that for me, at least. So I'm, I'm tentatively hopeful.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. I can't believe that was still in 2020. In my head, that was like two years ago.
1: <laughs> right before the pandemic, too. So it was it was quite the year.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Um, OK, so. You did mention in an interview, speaking of uh, being featured on blogs, uh, over with our arch frenemies at the Fantasy Hive, that the counselor (laughs) was originally part of your PhD program. Uh, So how did that come about? Was it you just wrote it during your PhD? Was it you actually wrote it for your degree?
1: Yeah, it was was part of my PhD. So the creative writing PhD worked in a way where you had a a creative component to the thesis, which in my case was a novel. And you also had an analytical component, which is more like, What we traditionally think of as a thesis and they they're presented together like in context so in the analytical component um I was analyzing Machiavellian politics in renaissance literature and in fantasy and I I focused on Shakespeare and Machiavelli together because I was interested in the dialogue of power and emotion I suppose you could say um in Shakespeare's political plays And for that work, I was also looking at political writings from the Renaissance, um, in particular looking at rhetoric, language techniques, um, emotional manipulation, and then also the balance in Shakespeare's plays between these very ruthless politicians who succeeded and then the sort of sympathetic human tragedy that went along with that. And as I was looking at that, I really noticed the link to epic fantasy Um, In particular, I was looking at George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, and of course that was inspired partly by the Wars of the Roses, like some of Shakespeare's plays. Like in Shakespeare you have Lancasters and Yorks, and then in A Song of Ice and Fire you have Lannisters and Starks, so there's a very familiar ring um, there. But I saw there was this kind of balance between these ruthless people who triumphed and then, again, the sympathy for the victims I suppose you could think about the red wedding as an example of that, for example, like who wins versus who we actually feel sorry for. So I guess coming back to the the PhD question, I was looking at all that and then I was thinking about how I wanted to use some aspects of that political balance in my own writing too, but to sort of shift it into a world that was different, like not a patriarchal fantasy world, but one that was gender equal, that was multicultural and then eventually queer norm too. And I was keeping on working on that after the PhD too and trying to add a few more layers to the novel, I
0: suppose. And I'm curious, so was it purely an analysis of all of the politics and the Machiavellian angle or were you kind of developing like, okay, well, how could you be as ruthlessly effective as possible?
1: Um, I think, I think what I'm more interested in, it's like less of like how ruthless can you be, which I think sometimes is, is what you see in grim, dark fantasy. But for me, it was more like a dialogue with what happens as a result of ruthlessness and what groups of people are affected. And then what are the power dynamics there? So I I think there's kind of a consciousness of that in Machiavelli too, but then especially in how Shakespeare handles that. So I was thinking about that, like, you know, if, if people who use pragmatic actions win, what effect does that have on other people? And then, if kind of unlikely people are brought into politics, um, how would they then deal with this kind of ruthless political world? So it was more opening up those kind of questions, I think, rather than like, how bloody can I make this? (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, So yeah, I mean, we've kind of talked about the lead up to it, but do you have a pitch for the actual book, The Counselor?
1: Yeah, um, if I was going to pitch it like without reference to other titles, I'd probably describe it as a character-focused story about power with an intellectual as the main character. But in terms of comparing it to other novels, um, I described it on Twitter as being Wolf Hall meets the Prior of the Orange Tree. I'd say that the similarities with Wolf Hole are that there's a low-born character who becomes involved in politics at a high level. Um, there are kind of backstabbing nobles and courtiers. There's reflections on power and on the transmission of knowledge. There are characters from outside the royal world uh, and I suppose most of all that there's a lot of the main characters, psychology throughout the story. But I, I suggested the prior of the orange tree, too, because I think the counsellor has those elements but they're integrated into this reimagined world where things like gender, sexuality and culture are different. But if you're looking for like a really simple pitch, I recently asked a friend who'd read my book how he'd describe it um, so that I could answer this question And his reply was just epic fantasy about a nerd. So maybe that's the simplest version possible. I'm not sure.
0: Oh, I love that. That's uh, short and pithy. But yeah, (laughs) no, I I think it's interesting that you recommend specifically those comp titles uh, because I have read neither one of those. And so based on reading The Counselor first, that kind of recommends those titles to me.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. I mean, if if I can recommend Wolf Hall to someone, I'd be super excited because I, I love it. And, you know, Goodreads ratings are interesting. When I first um, looked at Wolf Hall and Goodreads and I saw that it, it had a rating in the threes, I was truly shocked. I mean, it's it's an incredible novel.
0: Yeah, to a certain extent, I almost think that a rating in the threes is the sign of a potentially better book for an individual, just because a lot of people bounced off it because it was so specifically maybe in a certain niche that they couldn't appreciate. I don't know.
1: That's a really encouraging way of putting it, I think, yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't really fully understand Goodreads anyways. I mean, any system that lets books be rated five stars or one stars months before they're even released is a little questionable. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, I guess going back to that interview you had with the Fantasy Hive for a moment, I want to talk about something you said there. So you said that writing The Counselor was an act of survival. Can you elaborate on that at all?
1: Yeah, um, I began writing The Counselor at a time when I was at a really low point in my life. So I was struggling with life in general. And as a result, I was sick. And there was really a combination of like mental health struggle and then the physical effects on my body. So... What I found really hard about that was that I knew what was happening, but I couldn't stop it. And it felt like I just had no control over it. And it got to the point where I was just dreading waking up and having to experience it again. And writing had always been what made me happy. So I thought that if I could write about what I was experiencing, then maybe it would help me to get better. And the metaphor that really seemed to fit was that it felt like there was an evil queen who was sitting on my chest each morning and controlling me. So I thought to myself, well, what if I wrote a story about a queen who could control people? So that's where the seed of the novel really began. And in the story, Lisanne, the main character struggles with her mental health and with physical issues. And she has a similar kind of crossover of the mental and physical, but I didn't actually write that aspect from the very start. It it just took me a while to have the courage to work that into the story a bit more.
0: Yeah, I mean, in general, I feel like the Counselor features quite a lot of things that I don't often encounter in fantasy. Uh, So, I mean, you've got the epic fantasy with the nerd, right, as the main character. You've got I guess the, the magic is not as flashy as, say, like Avatar The Last Airbender or something, even though you're still using Elements. So, yeah, there was a lot, I think, that was kind of refreshing there.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I mean, I've heard people say, too, that they, they found there was something in it that was different, which, which is really nice to hear. But, yeah, I suppose at the end of the day, I wanted it to feel true to the experience I was trying to describe.
0: So I... I think your book first came onto my radar with that guest post we were talking about uh, that you wrote for The Inn a couple years ago about constructing a gender equal world. So why was this important to you and what sort of decisions went into the story so that you could create this kind of world?
1: I think there were really two big reasons that it was important to me. Um, One was that it freed up the narrative roles for female characters in that I didn't have to write a story about gender based depression or a story about the exceptional woman who kind of rises alone above the difficult conditions for women. And I'd, I'd read a article at that time about the, the female exceptionalism narrative, and I decided that it wasn't really what I wanted to write. Um, but, but to be clear, I think those kinds of stories can be really important and compelling. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to do in this particular book. Uh, so I wanted to have female characters who had all the same freedoms and rights as male characters without any discrimination that was based on gender. So I wanted to enjoy writing about women who are these like famous battle hardened, swaggering kind of leaders, Um, women who were leading intellectuals, women who had jobs like ordinary jobs as merchants or craftspeople, women who are army captains, assassins and and other kinds of things. And I, I really wanted to have some of them be colleagues and collaborate together too. So I was trying to create a world where that could more easily be the case, I suppose. The other reason that creating a gender equal world was really important to me, I think, and this this was more something that I discovered along the way rather than that I set out to do, but it empowered me in what I imagined that women could do as a result and, and also what I imagined that I could do. I found that I could more easily imagine how women could live their lives if patriarchy was totally removed from the equation. And I think just to have the mental space to devote to thinking about that had quite a powerful effect because so much of the effort of feminism is resistance and we really get the opportunity to just imagine a world where resistance isn't needed and to think, how can I live my life on more equal terms? So that was another aspect of it that ended up being important to me, but more something that developed as it went along.
0: Yeah, and I guess it seems to me that one of the first steps in weeding out that patriarchy would be removing kind of the fixation on physical strength. And I I even loved, so one of the memorable sayings in the novel that stood out to me is strength without swords. But I imagine dismantling the patriarchy is kind of a bit more complex than that, right? So what sorts of challenges did you face along the way trying to do that?
1: Yeah, um, gosh, what a a great question. I I definitely agree that there was a process of... um, Having to check things and pull things out, and and you know it's interesting you picked that motto because it's it's a male character who has um, who mentions that motto who has it as his motto, and I think sort of the flip side of it's not, it's not just about changing how we see women, but also changing what the model of strength is for anyone like including men. To like to answer your question, I noticed that I had a tendency to make many characters male just by default, um, especially when it came to side characters. Background characters and groups of people. And I think that was partly the legacy of of literature in general, and partly the epic and mythological stories that have been influential for me. But it was also partly the way I think that our society has historically treated men as the leading figures, and not just in stories, but in life. So I was trying to be conscious of that and, and to actively work against it until it wasn't the norm in my writing anymore. One example I can think of that springs to mind. Uh, is that early on all of the royal advisors in my novel were male and then I took stock of that and I thought like wait a minute that doesn't really make sense in this world it wouldn't be the case and I, I suppose beyond the gender of the characters too there's also like the language and the terminology in that there isn't really any difference in the status of a lady or a lord in the novel but I also wanted to give all the ordinary citizens a single title which is senor regardless of whether you're a woman or a man. And then when referring to a mixed group of people, I would use women and men rather than men and women. Uh, I suppose I wanted to use language to signal that it wasn't a patriarchal kingdom, just in some um, unexplained ways too.
0: I was just going to say, I was getting ready to ask about that because I definitely did notice that women and men phrasing popping up because that had to be very intentional and I imagine difficult not to just slip up into default because I think most people in our world kind of default to saying men and women. And so that it seems like something that would take a really close eye to weed out.
1: You know, I think that's really um sort of sort of the second reason I mentioned about why it was important to me and that it does change the way that you think and speak. In that when I first started doing that, I had to think about it consciously and then as time went on, it just became very natural. And I'd say the same thing with things like making sure that side characters or background characters are a mixture of genders and so on, like that at first required thought and then it didn't. So I found like that aspect of the world building was really empowering too in terms of how it changed my thinking. I think also because I noticed a couple of early reviewers who read the book mentioned this, but that there's there's also kind of a sexual freedom that women have in the novel and that there aren't any like gendered ideas about sex being shameful for women or like women needed to follow their husband's law or shoulder the buck of the child running duties of these kind of things and and la has exactly the same sexual freedom that a man in her role would have And, and again i suppose that's something that at first you have to think about and then becomes a more natural way of being able to write it
0: yeah and uh You don't see a lot like the conversation a lot in the fantasy space about strong female characters. A lot of times, uh, well, one, uh, it's a huge hornet's nest, I feel like, where strong, I guess, often means physical strength when people are talking about that, which in my opinion is not a strong female character. But you don't often see such strong sexual dominance in a female character, especially if they're the point of view protagonist. So that was refreshing as well.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I suppose I wanted it to not be an issue, like to not be something that would be a problem uh, or or that would be like totally shocking in this world. So that that all fits, I suppose, with the general ideas about gender and sexuality, too. But I do do notice that, yeah, that there aren't too many depictions of that, like not just in fantasy, but elsewhere as well.
0: Okay. so, yeah, I was wondering because. I can't really speak for other genres because I am sadly very kind of narrowed in on the breadth of books that I read. Uh, But yeah, I imagine that trend would kind of be somewhat universal.
1: Yeah, I suppose so, so far as I know too.
0: Well, so I find it interesting also because you find plenty of ways to dial up the conflict in the counselor without using gender or sexuality or race as the driving forces. Particular, it felt to me like class division took a step up. Uh, I mean, even the societal motto being everything in its place.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I definitely wanted to write about someone who was clever enough to contend with the upper class but was also kind of an outsider to that world and to its privilege and to the kind of confidence that privilege creates and i think the tension of trying to negotiate in a world where everyone else has grown up with a privilege that you haven't and, and working out your identity within that context that's very much like a central tension in the book um i suppose that's another reason why i linked it with Walpole if, if you're not familiar with the novel because i think there's a similar conflict in terms of class, privilege, power, and the struggle for an, an ordinary person to make choices about how they're going to use a new power. I suppose also beyond like just sand herself, there's also the broader financial inequality in the realm and the huge gap between what average people have and then the conditions of people in the, the regal world. So at, at one point she encounters some of the poorest people in the realm and although she's grown up for herself, she really sees for the first time what extreme starvation and deprivation look like. And then when she looks at inequality in the face, she, she sort of realises that all her efforts so far, no matter how earnest they've been, have just been like a drop in the ocean. So I guess there's, there's like the class element of or the, and the financial inequality and privilege of being a sort of ordinary person who enters a, a much more privileged world. And then there's also like the bigger gaps between class as well.
0: This may be a bit of a tangent, but I I know, so I read something you said online where you said that fantasy cannot be escapist because of kind of the inherent politics and which elements of a story a writer either rejects or affirms. So I'm curious because the choices you've made in The Counselor seem to be a marked improvement on our world. I mean, financial inequality aside, but so I'm curious how you feel about classifying the novel as escapist.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I, I suppose I'd say that some aspects of it are just as bad as ours. Like there's the persecution of the minority, executions, jail, torture, oppression, and discrimination. And then in this case, that's against magical people, and the the massive financial inequality and in class hierarchy. So I don't want to say it's a utopia by any means, but yeah, I can I can see why you you would ask that because I think in terms of gender, sexuality, and multiculturalism. Um, yes I hope that things are more equal but I I don't think it's really about escapism to me I I think it's still a novel that is really about power and pain but it just chooses to focus on mental and physical health on being an outsider um, on betrayal grief in a way that isn't really about sexism or homophobia or racism so the norm of the world building is a bit shifted Um, but the central story is I think still like an emotional and, and painful one rather than one that um that sort of helps you to escape from different or difficult feelings I think maybe like can fantasy be escape is like definitely um it's possible for someone to read a book and feel like they're escaping like I would never question that um I, I suppose I just reject the premise that there is is no kind of um political element to that you could create a novel that has no sort of political element whether that's conscious or subconscious. Perhaps that's really the question. But but I think it is a question and one that, that other people can probably explore and discuss with more nuance than I can too.
0: Right. And I, I do like that add on there because, I mean, even if we assume that there is a book that has intentionally been stripped of every political element, which I also feel is impossible, that's a very political choice in itself.
1: Yeah, and, and I look to things that um the other writers have said about, you know, this idea that when people from minority backgrounds speak somehow it becomes political, um, but otherwise it isn't. That's really just depending on on what your perspective is and like what your own background is, I think. Um I was on a panel at work um some people had a lot to say about this and, and sort of how, you know, things get the political label applied to them when they are perceived as being from a minority are different, um, and I think Michi Trata uh, had some some amazing things to say about that. And I know she's discussed it in in fan discourse as well.
0: Yeah, that sounds like an amazing panel. I'm sad that I missed it. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a, a huge con hard to to cover everything. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, okay, let's talk about characterization for a moment, uh, particularly of Lisand. So. How did you shape the story around her viewpoint as a scholar or uh an epic fantasy nerd, if we will? So, and how the heck did you make such a scheming, manipulative character so likable?
1: Uh gosh, that's yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting when I read this question to to hear Lissanne described as scheming. I, I think she's definitely someone who tries to strategize, but maybe scheming has a stronger connotation. But it's it's an intriguing description. I, I definitely tried to make her someone who feels fully human, uh, who does some good things, but also makes some mistakes. So I think it's, it's really up to readers to decide if they like her or not. I'd probably say that she's flawed, but she also strives for some changes to the world she's in and her, her friend and ex-lover Therese challenges her about whether she's made enough change and fast enough and and sort of says, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to wait my turn for something to happen. So I think it's probably possible to be sympathetic to, to that criticism and then also to her efforts. But again, it's, it's something I would leave to others to, to make their judgment on. I suppose um, in terms of what you asked about her characterization, there were some things where I drew on my own experiences, like some that I've mentioned, but uh, Lisanne is much more introverted than I am. So I tried to think really carefully about whether she would speak or hold things back in a certain situation and like how comfortable or not she would feel around people. I'm the kind of person who tends to feel really comfortable in a group and I think she is the opposite of that. So I I had to put some thought into that. I also wanted to show her engaging with the texts that she's read and the ideas she's encountered because sometimes I think she draws strength from books but then sometimes she questions the traditional ideas and values that she's been raised with. So she's skeptical of the way that magical people are unfairly treated and then she becomes skeptical of the idea that hierarchy should be maintained and rank and duties should be fixed so there's like a dialogue with history and literature and the ideas that are espoused through those texts but I think just coming back to the likability question that there's different ways of approaching the idea of likable and maybe um, it's just a matter of preference like you could apply likable to characters who always make the right choices. Um, but you could also apply it to characters who make mistakes and have to learn from their mistakes. And I'd probably put Lisanne in that letter camp. And whether that meets uh, a definition of likable is, is less of a concern for me. I think I'd rather just hear that she felt fully human.
0: Part of that, I guess, the specific wording of likable is my misconceptions about what Machiavellian means because I tend to think in terms of like cartoonishly evil uh, and that I don't think is accurate at all.
1: No look I think that's a really good point because there is a popular usage of Machiavellian and that's what most people know. Um, I've I've written a a little essay on that um, which should be on one of the uh, should be on a blog around the time of the book's release about like what is Machiavellian fantasy and, and sort of the idea of Machiavellian but yeah. Um, and people did seem to kind of take up that term. And I think often like the popular idea of what Machiavelli is, is, is like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, you know, someone yeah. who's kind of scheming and, and causing trouble all the time, but but in terms of the text, it can be a bit broader than that. Yeah.
0: Uh, and yeah, I, I do think that was definitely uh, my misconception because yeah, we do, we do get a lot of that in literature and pop culture, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, and I mean, we have mentioned this before, but after reading your prose, I was not surprised to see that you are a poet as well, Uh, even being shortlisted for some awards like the ACU and the Ada Cambridge Prizes. So it felt like that really showed in the prose. Is there a specific method or thought process you use when you're crafting that prose?
1: Oh, well, firstly, thank you. Um, I suppose like being a poet, like poetry makes me aware of the aesthetics of language. I think language is beautiful and not just functional so I think when I'm writing I want to try to write in a beautiful way but I don't know if I can achieve that it's more what I try to do and and maybe what drives me when I write as well um and I I think another thing that poetry helps with is focusing on emotion like there's a reason that we turn to poems at weddings and funerals and then um, more recently famously of course at the US inauguration because they really distill the essence of what we're feeling and I think poetry can remind us to focus on the emotional heart of the story too so I'd say that that sometimes helps in terms of what you asked about techniques for crafting prose like some aspects of writing are really intuitive for me and I think some aspects are more conscious Um, I'm conscious for example that I'm a fan of long sentences and that I'm I'm willing to use different kinds of punctuation to create a flow especially semicolons columns and dashes Um, (laughs) semicolons are magical I think (laughs) and I was really worried that people are going to hate the semicolons but but maybe that's that's yet to come um for for me though the rhythm of language in prose like as in poetry is really important so when I'm describing a scene like a a vista I might allow the language to roll on in long sentences like the character is surveying the landscape but then in a battle scene the sentences might sometimes be short and swift like the fighting so I try and think about the rhythm too. And and that's something that I really enjoy in other people's writing.
0: Yeah. Another thing. So in addition to all of that, that really stood out to me is uh, your tendency to end a lot of scenes, especially at the end of chapters with kind of this really prominent, often thematic visual image.
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, I I read a comment recently from someone saying that they felt that the chapters ended a bit abruptly or or that there was kind of a, a sort of disjunction between the the end of one chapter and the start of the next but i'm on the whole i suppose i am not always into chapters that end in cliffhangers and i I like to to have an image at the end um and and i think sometimes that that sort of unexpected start to a next chapter is is a nice transition for me um but but yeah i'm 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 really glad to hear if if it works for you you never really know what what people are going to pick up on
0: and uh part of it might a little bit be because I I tend to be a really slow reader. Uh, And so if I'm reading something and I know that I'm getting to the end, I kind of slow down and savor it a bit. And I feel like that helps kind of the endings resonate a bit more. I know sometimes, uh, particularly in audiobooks, if you're listening to something, it can feel abrupt because the speaker will just stop speaking and then all of a sudden you're on the next chapter. Uh, But I think, yeah, kind of pulling back with these visual images uh, definitely kind of broke it up for me.
1: Oh, well, that's really good to hear. I, I kind of like to dwell on things a little bit too when I'm reading and I suppose something that I really like is is when you have a combination of words that's slightly unexpected, like saying that someone has a, a dangerous smile or like the fire is almost orange in colour to give examples of two that I think I've used. I I like the way when those combinations of words they kind of allow you to imagine what it might look like or feel like rather than just telling you. And I think in terms of pace, that's something that slows me down, too, and that I have to sort of pause and go, oh, okay, what would that actually look like or what would that feel like?
0: really like that especially the dangerous smile because i feel like that conveys so much with so few words oh thank you and
1: and yeah and i love um i think the fantasy novels that really stand out to me the most are ones that do things like that i'm I'm thinking of Susanna clark jonathan strange and mr naral and then more recently piranesi um and also nk jemisin like anything she writes like the language is so beautifully used
0: Yeah, uh, I have yet to read Susanna Clarke, but strong agree with N.K. Jemisin. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into the magic a little bit, uh, because magic is both the driving factor in the overall conflict of the book, uh, and also it's not really as much at the foreground as you see in many fantasy novels. And you use the tried-and-true framework of this elemental magic system, but with your own added spin. So I guess in general, just how do you approach the magic in your writing?
1: I'm a really character-focused writer, so I wasn't setting out to build a highly detailed magic system, but I did want to use magic symbolically to tie into the human stories, like into the character. And I was really interested in the novel as well, in, in dark powers of the mind and what they could potentially do and how people might react to them. Because I think this idea of mental magic is so powerful to me because the mind can have such a positive power, but it can definitely have a a really dark and damaging power as well. So that was really what I I sort of kept um, in in the foreground in my own mind, even if it wasn't always in the foreground of the story. Um, As one of the the characters points out, it it carries the threat of like losing your selfhood, losing control over your own thoughts. So I was thinking about mental illness when I was writing about that magic. So that threat um, hangs over the characters as they're working against the white queen who has that power
0: yeah uh, i think that definitely comes through and yeah you know the mind and brains in general can be uh really the big bads of the real world yeah absolutely so yeah uh even outside of the magic i just i uh want to talk about your fight scenes a bit because it felt to me like they were equal parts action and equal part character development so what was your process when writing these scenes
1: yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that you thought so because character development is always what I'm going for, including in the fight scenes. Because as a reader, I really love reading about large-scale historical battles, but I only really care about them if I care about the characters. So I think I try to apply the same idea as a writer. Um, and The Counselor, it's really a story about thinking people, like shrewd people, ambitious people. So a lot of the characters are people who fight with their minds, um, who use manoeuvres and feints and strategy Some of them are also physically strong but in most cases it's not really a matter of like strength wins so Cassia for example one of the city rulers is a really experienced warrior but she's also really innovative and clever with weapons um not just physically strong and then Jael one of the other city rulers isn't strong at all but he's extremely fast and agile and I suppose Luca most of all he's really the kind of fighter that doesn't rely on the physical as his means of attack at all he's always trying to think two steps ahead and, and outsmart his opponent. And there's a, a scene where he's, um, he has a close fight with someone with a rapier and he kind of wins the fight by how he actually receives the other person's energy. So uh, I tend to think about those things too. Um, but, but when it comes to writing a climactic fight on a big scale, I was also thinking about how an upping of the stakes to life and death can bring out some of the hidden loyalties and desires that people have. So, whether that means people are making a move to save someone or whether that means they're trying to betray someone, I think the characters can be pushed to the edge and decide, like, now is the moment that I have to do it because the stakes are higher. So I, I try to use a big fight to also bring out some of those hidden motivations and desires.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm looking for in fight scenes as well, because that, to me, is so much more interesting than uh, they swipe their sword this way, then they parry this way, <laughs> and all of those individual technical details.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose I'd agree. I think that's the kind of reader that I am, too.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Luca as well, because it, this is definitely a tangent, but I really hope that we get some great fan art of Luca, particularly, because I, f- I feel like he <laughs> was made for fan art.
1: Oh God. Yeah. I I mean, look, honestly, having fan out of any character would be like the biggest honor for me. I I saw a post about this just recently on on Twitter, someone saying, would you like to be tagged in fan art to authors in general? And like the the answer in my case is yes, absolutely. But I'm really glad to hear that you like Luca. I was honestly surprised because like the first readers that I sent my book to were all, um, all like Luca by far the most of any character, um, which wasn't necessarily what I expected. Um, and I, I received some really funny notes in the margin as well. So, um, yeah, m- maybe I'll get super lucky and and we'll get some art. But who knows? I'd, I'd definitely love it if that were the case. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, especially with uh, elemental magic and everything, I think that Luca really has a uh, lockdown on thirst as his element. And I think that we might be seeing that when the book <laughs> comes out.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> It's so funny to hear that I yeah, again, like i received some uh some funny comments from people, so i'm I'm looking forward to to seeing how other people react to when the book is released,
0: okay, and then so my last kind of question about the book, uh very, very deep and intellectual, how freaking cool are chimeras? I don't see them nearly often enough in fantasy,
1: yeah, I, I mean, I'd have to agree with you, but that they're cool, and that I don't see them often enough either originally though I have to admit that I had dragons in the novel instead of chimeras and I really love dragons but they've just been so frequently included in fantasy that I felt in order to keep them I felt like I needed to be depicting them in a unique way like doing something new with them like some authors still do and I just wasn't doing that so I was editing my book and I realized that the dragons probably needed to become something else and I brainstormed different magical creatures and then when I came across chimeras I just knew that it was the right fit. I think symbolically um, it was what worked for the story. I suppose that's because Chimeras are hybrid creatures who aren't exactly one thing or the other and are like a mishmash of different textures and animal parts and I think symbolically that's who Lisanne is too as a character. She's got a position that elevates her above her humble beginnings but she's not a noble and she doesn't quite fit anywhere in the existing order. And then Also, she's bisexual. Her sexuality encompasses attraction to more than one gender. She's got mixed feelings about power and morality. Some of them are, like, tied to selfishness, and some of them are more about the needs of others. So I think the idea of a hybrid creature I felt just really fitted her. I suppose that the other reason that chimeras really appealed to me is that I feel like I'm a bit of a hybrid myself as an author in that I've always really enjoyed fantasy and mythology, and I've also also... um, read a lot of what is shelved as literary fiction and I'm a poet so I think that all those things combine a bit in what I look for as a reader too and in how I approach writing so I feel like the hybrid is a really wonderful thing um and, and a glorious thing and so maybe chimeras are too for that reason
0: yeah uh, when you put it like that it kind of seems like chimeras were inevitable that you couldn't have picked anything else <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you might not say that if you could have seen how cliche my dragons were in the beginning. but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it turned out that way.
0: <laughs> oh, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that there are plenty of cliche dragons in fantasy, uh, but I will always still love them. I mean, I I have a tattoo of a dragon taking up almost half of my back, so they definitely hold like a special place <laughs> in my heart. Oh,
1: I'm the same. And when I saw that cover of John Gwynne's newest book recently, and it had the gigantic dragon, I think like everyone else, I just went, oh, like, it's a huge dragon that's the entire book cover. I, it doesn't get more exciting. I think really it's it's not that I have lost the slightest bit of excitement over dragons. It was more that I felt I couldn't write them in a way that was really doing something new with them. But I, I enjoy reading other people's take on them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, your cover as well, I feel like, is... Uh... Very interesting. It's a total opposite direction, kind of a huge giant dragon on the front. But it really, it kind of nails that tone of this is a scholar. The quill is kind of her weapon in many ways. Uh, and I mean, it It does have a chimera on it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you like the cover. And I think the response on the whole to it seems to have been positive. Um, I'm so grateful to Adam Auerbach, who designed it, and to Dor, who talked to me a lot about it, and my editor, Leah, who discussed a lot with me because... I I feel that they made something that was what I really liked as an author. And um, I just love how it matches the story and, and how Adams kind of included creatively a number of different little elements, like the page turning over the writing in the background, the the bloody quill and and all those things. And, and yeah, as you say, the Chimera, it's quite, um, it's not, it's the opposite of like a a huge uh, figure it's, it's quite minimalist and I really like that.
0: Well, uh, looking forward, is there anything you're working on currently that you can tell us about?
1: Yeah, at the moment I'm getting towards the end of writing the sequel to The Counselor, which doesn't have a title yet, and and sort of thinking carefully about um, where the story is going. um, I'm still working through it. I can say that uh, some of the tension between two of the characters in book one really boils over in book two, and there are consequences, both personal and political consequences. I have a bunch of ideas for other projects, which are always a various stages of development from scroll notes to chapters. Uh, I think my brain's always really busy with ideas, but I'm, I'm also really interested in historical fiction and mythological fiction as well as fantasy. So If there was double the amount of time in the day, (laughs) that would be wonderful.
0: (laughs) If only, right? Uh, So uh, you said you're working on the sequel to The Counselor. Is that going to be the final book? Is it a duology?
1: Um, We're actually, uh, yeah, I'm aware a couple of people are actually sort of figuring that out at the moment, which is why I haven't given an answer on it yet. So um, (laughs) I'm thinking carefully about the story at the moment.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, uh, what about, are there any other books that you've enjoyed lately? Anything that you can recommend?
1: Oh gosh, so many. I, I think um, at some point you just have to stop me, um, but I'll try to just give some highlights. Um, I mentioned before how much I love Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I think that was an incredible novel of last year. There was just so much to the story and such a short book. The protagonist's view of the world, the really gradual, skillful reveal of information, the mystery as to whether things were real or imagined. I read it during our extremely long lockdown in Melbourne which was 112 days last year. I think we had one of the longest lockdowns last year where we could barely go outside and the blurring of reality in that book it sort of felt like the experience of lockdown a bit Um, and of course the main character is really locked in one place and I I think that a lot of people in the world are dealing with that now so maybe it's a good lockdown novel to read. Um, In terms of genre fantasy and historical inspired fantasy God, I've I read some amazing books. I've read a few early copies of books that are coming out this year. So uh, one is Tasha's series, The Jasmine Throne, which is deservingly getting a lot of hype. Um, it's a story about queer women, about fighting oppression. It's got some really dramatic and powerful choices in it. Um, it's got some fantastic female characters. And I love how kind of looping back to what you said before about, about strong women being kind of a limited idea. I like how it goes beyond the idea of just the kick butt women and it shows different ideas of strength in one book it's it's really great
0: yeah I uh, have not read that yet but I do have an advanced copy so I'm hoping to get to it soon
1: oh oh great I hope you enjoy it uh, speaking of ARCs too, I, I read Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun which is this really beautifully written reimagining of Chinese history and again with queer characters at the fore. Um, And I I really love Shelley's main character, who isn't a cliche heroine, but is very ambitious and determined. Um, And I'm I'm super looking forward to seeing what she does in the next book. I think it's going to be really fantastic and nuanced.
0: Yeah. At this point, I feel like you're just describing my upcoming books that I'm going to be reading because I also (laughs) can't wait to get to that.
1: (laughs) I I mean, yeah, I I can see that. So, So two books that came out in late 2020 then that I would recommend, um... Sam Hawke's Hollow Empire, the end of a duology, and Anna Stevens' The Stone Knife, the start of a new series. I felt both of them had really high-stakes drama, conflict, politics. Um, Sam's Hollow Empire has a wonderful character called Kalina, who is clever and complicated and often underestimated, and I really love the way that her story ended in particular. And I think Anna's novel, The Stone Knife, has some incredibly vivid moments that just <laughs> stick in your mind. Um, yes. Yeah, the, the story, like, it's it's all about the dangers of expansionism told from different sides of the political conflict. And there was a moment that was so violent um, and vivid that I, I shouted out while reading it, like, through the wall of the house. Um, it's got some really dark drama. And I'd say I think people who are fans of that will really enjoy it.
0: Yep. Yep. I know exactly which moment you're talking about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I better not spoil it for people then. I I mean, on the mythology and magical realist side of things, I recently read bestiary by Kaming Chang, which is this really sharp magic realist take um, on the story of it's a female figure story. It's about several generations of Taiwanese American women in one family. And it's got, mythology woven through it and it's got bits of poetry and a really compelling queer character at the fore and the story doesn't really go anywhere much and I think that's what I liked about it it's really about understanding these people and the experiences that they're shaped by and the things that haunt them too and and I suppose I'd add one more thinking of haunting reads Um, I also want to mention Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls for anyone who enjoyed Madeline Miller's Circe and Song of Achilles, um, this is another Greek mythology novel, but it's a retelling of the Trojan War and it deals with the abuse of the women in the camp and it's a very emotional read. Um, it also features Achilles, but it's, it's got a quite different feeling. So I think like, if you want to extend your Greek mythology contemporary novels beyond Madeline Miller, this is a really good one to try as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite parts about these interviews is I get to add so many uh, really fascinating sounding books to my list.
1: Uh, I've been feeling the same listening to interviews lately. I, I'm so keen to read Son of the Storm. Um finding out that the main character is uh, I think a scholar I'm just so keen for that book
0: <laughs> okay I actually did not know that but that makes me even more excited
1: yeah I've heard that so um so'm I'm, I'm adding to my TBR as well
0: yeah well uh, the way I like to kind of close out these interviews is just asking what's something that you're excited about right now
1: um I suppose it's it's a bit of an obvious answer but I'm I'm really excited to read more readers comments about the counselor once the book comes out um, it's just such a joy to hear people respond to the story um, and just from the sample of early responses, I'm just so impressed with how people pick up different facets and articulate what they liked and didn't like um, at the last few months for me, have been really difficult um, because of some things going on. So, when I hear that the book meant something to people, it's really moving. So I try and read all the reviews and comments that I come across and whether it's like a long analytical review or whether they're shouting something on Twitter, it just makes me so happy. So I'm really excited um, to hear more of what readers think um, and when the book comes out and, and just want to say thank you to everyone who, who takes the time to read it, like whether that's as an AFC or afterwards. Um, and I'm also really excited to see the response to some of the novels I mentioned that I've read I assume, of. Um, I think they're going to be really big hits and are going to deliver some, um, some wonderful representation as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing the inevitable flailing over those as well.
0: Yes, uh, me too. So this has been so very lovely EJ the counselor most definitely lived up to the years of anticipation uh, and I'll be thinking about it for a while Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat thank you so much for having me it's just been a total pleasure you can find EJ Beaton on Twitter as EJ underscore Beaton or at our website ejbeaton.com. The Counselor is a poetic, political epic fantasy with a nerdy hero, all set in a gender-equal world, which is a long way of saying it's pretty great. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyend.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider nominating us for the Hugo Award for Best Fancast. Nominations are open from now through March 19th. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.